Wednesday, the, the Ladies Literary Society will meet. Mrs. Johnson will sing, quote, Put Me in My Little Bed, accompanied by the pastor. <laughs> Thursday at 5 p.m., there will be a meeting of the Little Mothers Club. All wishing to become little mothers will please meet with the minister in his study. Well, as long as I'm reading this and it's being recorded and... This being Easter Sunday, we will ask Mrs. Brown to come forward and lay an egg on the altar. <laughs> the ladies of the church have cast off clothing of every kind, and they can be seen in the church basement on Friday afternoon. <laughs> Low self-esteem group will meet Thursday at 7 p.m. Please use the back door. This one's a little edgier, but I have to read it. Weight Watchers will meet at 7 p.m. at the First Presbyterian Church. Please use the large double door at the side entrance. (laughs) Bad. Anyway, that was a little entertainment while we're waiting for the main event. So as I'm about to launch into the main event, I'm I'm always aware that, that... before I speak is where the, the action is, uh, that nothing I, can, nothing I can say can improve on that moment, that gap, that moment of being open after the last thought has ceased and before the next one comes, those moments of bare simplicity. At that moment, before I start speaking, or whatever it is that you're waiting for, it's that moment that is often overlooked and more of our attention is on what's to come rather than what we're actually experiencing. And yet all the words that at least I ever offer here, or the teachings of the Dharma, are simply pointers, reminders to... Uh, not to overlook that simple moment, to let yourself fall into the, the gaps, to, into the silence, to, as they say in London, mind the gap by the subway system. Because it's in the gap that we discover reality, what we ordinary, ordinarily associate with reality is really the, um, as I like to speak about a lot, is the reality we think of as the, the story of our lives, the story of the world. And I know that if we think about the world tonight, if we think about our own individual world, our own individual lives, our own situations, uh, the political landscape, the environmental landscape, the lives of so many people, we can become quite submerged. And I think a lot of people are feeling really submerged, not so much by reality, but by 
the uh, thoughts about reality and our feelings about reality, the burden of of dwelling on what's happening. And I think it's important for us to think about the world, think about our lives, and think about our situations. But the tragedy is that we become so habituated to thinking about the world and our situations and strategizing and lamenting and complaining and worrying that in the midst of all of that very natural kind of contemplation, a potential for a sense of relief is, is missed. So I often, when I meet with groups, I will recommend that you uh, let go of any expectations, let go of any idea of how this is going to help you with your life, and that's when I meet with people who are just beginning meditation. But rather than focusing on what it will mean for you in your life, even though these are important contemplations from time to time, but rather than being caught in that, being so worried about whether you're going to get something, rather just stop. Just let go. Because truth or realization is not something that you get. It's just something that you realize. It's something that comes out of, out of immediate and direct experience. So my working title for the stray thoughts that I had tonight was Die Before You're Dead. Of course, it may morph into something else as, as the night goes on. But I was thinking about this idea of of how much our lives are preoccupied with, with the world and where the world is going and where our lives are going. And we think about our lives as, because we're so deeply, so naturally associated with our bodies that are getting old and are getting sick. Our, well, some of us, you know, we're all, we're all in the process at some point. At some point, get sick. But... Our bodies are are um, are really in a in a constant state of change. The world is in a constant state of change, and so there's a tendency to be running for our lives, trying to figure out how to find some relief. And I know someone who is his because the tendency is to look for it in our minds. He's all excited about this one person. Is excited about the. Uh, the idea that's, I think, very popular in the science fiction world, which is uh, live long enough that you can live forever. Have any of you heard that line? Live long enough so you can live forever. The idea is that in the next many years, if you can make it there, things are going to explode. The potential for great expanse of life is there, and that is the closest that at least this person can get to the possibility of salvation is in having this tremendous longevity. And we do it in subtle ways, try to extend our lives. 
and partly because of this deep identification with our bodies as ourselves that belief that that's what we are uh, and then we in the face of that need to f- fight with with death with the inevitable dissolution of our body we beautify it we stretch it and we hair plant it or whatever that I forgot what what do they call it hair plugs or uh, tummy tucks breast jobs butt jobs leg jobs (laughs) I mean it's unbelievable and of course this is all this process of you could say running from silence, running from the gap. All because our mind is preoccupied with the idea that I am the body or that I am someone who was born and will, will die and I want to, I don't want to. And consequently, we've gotten so caught up in trying to avoid dying and that our culture, of course, is, has become masterful at hiding our elderly people away and helping us into a kind of trance of self-deception, ignoring the facts of uh, that we all... And what was it, the statistic? Well, it's the obvious statistic. In There are about six billion of us now, and within a hundred years, we will all be replaced... I like that thought. It's kind of... How do you like that thought when you hear it? But even though this may sound kind of grim, this fact that we're just on this conveyor belt from our, at least our bodies, from birth, through our many experiences, through sickness, old age, and death... There's, a, there's another way to approach this predicament, our situation. And that is to not be so busy dying. Not be so busy running from it, which is just another way of being busy dying. But rather, die before you're dead. Which means, stop this life right now that you, that you create in your mind. And actually be born into real life. The life of presence. The life of consciousness. The life of wakefulness. We can, I can give you uh, both a, a humorous version of Die Before You're Dead. This is the often shared poem, anonymous poem called Reverse Living. Life is tough. It takes up a lot of your time. All your weekends. And what do you get at the end of it? Death. A great reward. I think that the life cycle is all backwards. You should die first. Get it out of the way. Then you live 20 years in an old age home. You get kicked out when you're too young. You get a gold watch. You go to work. 
You work for 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. You go to college. You party until you're ready for high school. (laughs) You become a little kid. You play. You have no responsibilities. You become a little boy or girl. You go back into the womb. You spend your last nine months floating. And you finish off as a gleam in someone's eye. The beauty of this is you actually, you actually can be that gleam in your own eye. You are that gleam. Before you remind yourself, based on memory, that you're this or you're that, your role, your gender, whatever it might be, that you are that gleam. This is what Rumi said in his poem, He said, inside this new love, inside this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. Take an axe to the prison wall. Escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into color. Do it now. You're covered with thick clouds. Slide out the side. Die. And be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you have died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. From Rumi. So we may not appreciate that the simple act of bringing mindful attention to our bodies, to to the sounds, to our sensations, to the thoughts, the images, the moods, that these moments of mindfulness are moments of stepping off of the wheel of living, this wheel of life, the act in every moment of stepping out of time. And the need for this stepping out, or in other words, stepping into life, the need is so great because we are, we have been conditioned from time immemorial to to be in a compulsive in a compulsive state of um, of becoming the buddha called bhava becoming obsessed with hopes dreams obsessed with with what's next and of course if my if my mind is is focused on what's next uh, i i'm not able to mind the gap not able to see what's right here 
And because my mind is, as my teacher Joseph Goldstein used to put it, toppling forward into the next moment, my body is left, my organism is left unattended to. It's left uh, in a state of, of suspension, in a state of tension, in a state of waiting, in a state of hoping, in a state of expecting, in a state of, of wanting. That, and that wanting hardens into craving, into cr- this incredible yearning and thirst for relief. And mostly what, as Sogya Rinpoche says, what what's samsara or society holds out to quench that thirst just makes us thirstier, like salt water. And each moment that I'm caught in this state of craving and hoping and expecting, that tension that of the tension that comes from being in that state of suspended happiness, suspended well-being, that tension produces such internal pressure that it spawns in our minds more thinking, more compulsive thinking, planning, strategizing, uh, becoming. The Buddha spoke of this compulsion to think and to plan, to create, to get, to build the, the house of me, the, the story of me, to build the, the, the vision of my, uh, of my salvation. He described that in a, a, a simple word called papancha, which is generally translated as proliferation or compulsion or complication, how the simple reality, the simple gap, really, the simple reality becomes complicated with the overlay of our, of our um, story about our situation. And as I said before, it's natural to think about our lives and our situations. It's really important to plan and to vision and do all those things but not to the extent that we miss reality. And what we discover when we stop the, for a little bit of time, not simply stop the compulsion, but begin to notice the compulsion, notice the way that we're thinking. The Buddha said that there are basically three kinds of compulsive thinking that we tend to enter into. Three kinds of papancha. I just want to explain papancha again. This is a very traditional definition of papancha, the unbidden going of the mind away from the present to imagined experiences or objects. A little more flowery one, the propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. So what gets obscured, what is the bare data of cognition? What is the, what's, to me the bare data of cognition is closer to reality. Of course, our mind immediately wants to then define and put into a little box what's reality. But the closest we can come in concepts is starting perhaps with there's hearing. (laughs) 
There's smelling, there's tasting, there's feeling, there's thinking. There's just the basic sense data. There's knowing. Then if we stay with, with just the bare simplicity of things, that, that knowing, we call consciousness that arises with each experience, so this consciousness that arises with hearing arises and is gone. It's not the same consciousness that arises with seeing. Seeing consciousness arises, gone. Smelling consciousness, gone. Tasting, gone. Sensing, gone. Consciousness and its objects flipping on and off, moment by moment. Actually, nothing there that can be captured in so different from the the narrative that makes it all into this drama. The picture that we have of ourselves in the world is missed. I mean, it's, it, it misses or it, it colors, it covers this simple experience of experiences arising and dissolving. That's not so... Life, really, in its immediacy, is not so complicated. It's just these experiences. The Buddha highlighted this in one of his most famous little pithy sutras called, sometimes called the All. Where he said, in the scene, how often are we this simple in our lives? This is why we practice a little bit, so that we can see the difference between what's real and simple and the, this effusion of, of thinking. Like that line from James J. Audubon, where he says, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. So we, why do we want to believe the bird? Why is it so important? One, to, not to be, not to be living in illusion. But two, that when we are in touch with the, to use that translation again, when we're in touch with the bare data of cognition, just the bare experience. It's virtually impossible when mindful attention lights on things just the way they are, in their bare simplicity. It's very difficult to find suffering. It's very difficult to find the sufferer. It's very difficult to find the one who is born and who will die. It's very difficult to find the one whose situation is so difficult. And this is not to deny our difficult situations, but it's to actually, it's to also know that right in the midst of it all, right in the middle of our life, there is a capacity for freedom. There is a capacity to be unbound from that that conviction 
that you are the one who is bound up in this very difficult situation, that you are just limited to that, that you are just limited to your karma. You are not. You, in your deepest nature, what the Buddha discovered under the Bodhi tree, what you can discover and get glimpses of in any moment when you mind the gap, you are not in any way limited to your your views, your opinions. Getting back to views and opinions, the three kinds of proliferation, three ways that we complicate reality and start to live in the virtual reality is what the Buddha called uh, tanha papancha, where there's a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of uh, thinking and 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 uh, um, proliferation around what we want, what we would like to have, what we want to happen, what we'd like to have. So that's called tanha papancha. The, the tanha is the word for craving or thirst, hunger. Then there is what he called ditti papancha, which is the the proliferation around views and opinions and ideas. So much of our identity gets bound up in views and opinions. I know that that's one of the ones that I'm most, when I see incompetence, when I see the wackos running the world, you know, whenever my mind is creating that whole thing, that the whole world of views stimulates probably more sense of what we call selfing creating that illusion of separateness and and that feeling that unless people start thinking differently that will will I'll never be happy and it's true if you do tether your sense of well-being to to the world turning out the way that you want it to you wait a long time because we know that the world is the way it is because people are the way they are Nisargadatta said, as long as people are the way they are, the world will be the way it is. And if we really want peace, a peaceful world, conscious world, you have to have conscious and peaceful people. So we have to start right here, right at home. So there's Tanha Papancha, Ditti Papancha, and then the maybe the most lethal is in some way is what, what the Buddha called mana papancha, which is another, mana is the word for pride or conceit or the, the preoccupation, preoccupation with our personality view, the view of ourselves as either being above, below, or equal to others. The, the view that's very much, it generates the, all of our comparing mind our envy, our jealousy, our, our um, measuring, uh, our, our insecurity, our anxiety, it just gets generated by this kind of mana, this kind of uh, thinking all about me. And as I say, I think every week here at some point or another, say that that one that we imagine ourselves to be that is measurable, that's above, below, or equal to. Any of you ever have any of those comparisons? Well, that, when I say, if you, do you have one of those comparisons, 
Those comparisons are not you. They describe somebody that doesn't exist. They describe an imaginary version of you. The beauty of meditation practice is besides settling into, getting used to the bare reality, coming home to ourselves, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, reclaiming our heritage. He says, you who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come home and reclaim your heritage. Not only do we reclaim our heritage as we mind the gap, as we come into simplicity, but we also get to notice and use as our food of practice. We get to notice all the ways that we run from silence, all the ways that we leave ourselves, disconnect, become confused, become deluded, become lost in the story. We can notice that and then use that, use it. Use it to remind us of our love of being right where we are. Use it as our reminder that we want to die before we're dead. As Patro Rinpoche, one of my favorite uh, old Tibetan master, jokester, fool, said, Don't prolong the past. Don't invite the future. Don't alter your innate wakefulness. Don't fear appearances. Apart from that, there's not a damn thing. It's very simple. Or as Punjaji said, you need the thoughts, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. The boulders of the past and the projections of the future rest on your chest and destroy your life and freedom. Remove them by recognizing them as I-thoughts. Freedom waits, but most are engaged with something else. Don't tie yourself to anything in the past or the future. It will not work. Be attached only to this moment. When you hold to something other than your true nature, you will be disturbed. By holding attachment to transient things, you declare to yourself that you are not the fullness in which all is. Everyone is a Buddha. You have to break these attachments. How do we break these attachments? by minding the gap. What's happening right now? Our stories that play through our mind may be much more entertaining, but I don't know about you, tonight when I was sitting, the first part of the sitting as I was giving some instructions, and I was listening to my own instructions because they were helpful to me, too, <laughs> just to, to help me just be right here, just orient myself, bring my mind, put my mind in my body, my body in my mind. If I knew that if I was feeling my body, you're feeling your body, that you're here. And I could just feel the, the calcified stresses begin to melt away. First, reveal themselves, the, un, 
the unfelt tension, the the buildup of of the effects of all the basic stresses of life, that was felt first, but then there was a kind of melting and a deep appreciation of being able to be right here, right now, doing what I'm doing, not, uh, not worried about what's next, but really passionate about settling into the moment. But then I noticed, after some, having drifted into one of my endless fantasies, so any illusion you had about me being absolutely clear with thought-free for 45 minutes, let go, let go. <laughs> but I noticed, I didn't have any particular judgment about it, but I noticed that when I came back from that ride, from that ride into the imagined world of me and mine and the world situation, my whole organism had kind of reconfigured as a, as a kind of wound up, slightly foggy, slightly disconnected bundle of sensation. And I noticed the impact of that. And the good news about having noticed the impact is that moment became the cause. It became a... a um, that moment met with more mindfulness. That moment of coming back met with more mindfulness became the cause of a, a deeper, a deepening commitment in remaining, as much as possible, remaining undistracted. Knowing that I will, because of my conditioning and you because of your conditioning, we will wander a long time confused and come back again and again. But the more we orient ourselves to living this life of dharma, of truth, of reality, of immediacy, the more we will cure our fatigue and some of the, some of the momentum, some of the tension that we keep practicing every day will melt away a little bit. And it's really up to each of us to mind the gap, to just be right where we are. So I'll end with a, from the words of the Buddha from the Udana Sutra. He says, For one who clings, motion exists. For one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where neither coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world, nor a world beyond, nor a state between. This, verily, is the end of suffering. This is the joy of nirvana. <laughs>